はい、皆さん、こんにちは。メールデンジャパンへようこそ、ホストのエリオットです。3月31日、名古屋は快晴で、えー、気持ちよい日曜日になってますね。桜は今週末が見頃と言われましたが、あの、昨日は午後からずっと雨が降っていて、だいぶ散ったんじゃないかなと思いますね。えー、もし、今年見逃してしまったら、まあ、また来年ですね。あの、先週の火曜日、えー、26日に東京で行われた外国人受け入れと日本の未来、えー、というシンポジウムに参加してきました。でこのシンポジウムは、えー、日本国際交流センターの主催で、外国人基本法に関する提言とパネルディスカッションが中心となったんですが、あの、会場が満杯で、あの山下法務大臣が冒頭の挨拶もされてまあ大盛況でしたねでそこで出た意見や提案の中であの僕がまあ賛成するものもあれば、えー、反対するものもあったんですがあの参観学の方々や、まあ、有識者マスメディア記者が一度に会してあの正面から真剣に在留外国人の今後について多面的に議論することには大きな可能性を感じたんですね。あの4月から特定技能が始まり新たな資格で、まあ、より多くの外国人の在留が迫っている中こうした動きは政府や、まあ、行政機関に対して今後より一層求められると思いますしあの説明がつく提案実態を踏まえた補整備をとことん進めていってしかるべきだと思います、えー、僕は引き続き情報を収集してあのグローバル愛知としては、まあ、現場で、えー、現場の現状を把握しながら定期的に皆さんにフィードバックしていきたいと思うんですが、まあ、このシンポジウムの開催はまさしく時代の変化を表していると思いますしあの象徴的な意味が大きかったと思います。まあそれが今後どのように、えー、法律だったり政策に落とし込まれていくのかっていうのが肝なんですけれども、えー、とりあえずの段階では象徴的なインパクトがかなりありましたね。ではでは、えー、今日のポッキャストは長いので、えー、挨拶はなるべく手短に。あの今回のゲストは南山大学総合政策学部の教授にして社会,学、えー、社会科学研究科総合政策学専攻主任であるデイビッド・ポッター先生です。肩書き長いですねあのポッター先生はアメリカのカリフォルニア州生まれ,生まれ育ちの、えー、政治学博士であの専門は日本の ODA ですね。そして、まあ、国際援助や NGO の、えー、活動です<咳> 2000年から名古屋の南山大学で教えるポッター先生は、えー、自分の考え方をはっきりと、えーまあ、確立させており、えー、日本における学術世界や、まあ、若い世代の傾向だったり、まあ、あの全ての意見がとてもクリアですねでストレートにものを言う人はこの国ではなかなか巡り合わないので、まあ、僕はポター先生と非常に、うん
通じるところがありますね。あの本人は当初からキャリアのための選択肢として、えー、日本に来ておられるので日本にまあ何をしに来たのかとか、なぜ住み続けて見えるのかとか、まあこういうことはとても明確になっています、えー。ただし先ほどの肩書きからも分かってもらえたんじゃないかなと思うんですが、えー、ポッター先生はただ単に教えてるだけじゃなくて、あの、かねてから現在に至るまでずっと大学ではアドミノストレーション的な役割も果たしておられてあの大学の運命の決断に関わるぐらいあの重要な人物ですねでこの点こそが Made it in Japan だと思いますよねあの目標を持って日本に来てから実現してはとどまらず昇進し続けるあの若い世代の在留外国人にとっては素晴らしいロールモデルだと思いますしあのインタビューの最後にはあのとても参考になるアドバイスもくださったので、えーまあ、途中を飛ばしても終わりは必ず聞いてください実はポッター先生はかなり前からの付き合いであの僕は交換留学生の頃からあのポッター先生から影響を受けてますしあの今でももちろんあの尊敬をしておりあのお,話お話をいつも面白く聞いていますインタビューは英語の挨拶が終わってから始まりますのであの皆さんにもあの土曜に面白く聞いていただければ幸いですあの4月にはえー、とポッドキャストのゲストのスターラインアップを予定しているのであの今後の新しいエピソードもお楽しみにありがとうございますエリエット・ヒア、Welcome to this episode of Made it in Japan Thanks as always for tuning in Today's episode is quite a long one So I'm not going to waste any time with the English introduction Uh, today, I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. David Potter, professor and current director of the graduate program in policy studies at Nanzan University, which is a private university located here in Nagoya. Dr. Potter is a political scientist、uh, who got his PhD at UC Santa Barbara and specializes in foreign policy, specifically Japanese ODA and the activities of international NGOs. He formerly taught at Northern Kentucky University, but has been at Nanzan since 2000 and lives here in Nagoya with his family.、Uh, and I mentioned this right at the beginning of the podcast, but my relationship with Dr. Potter goes back to when I first came to Japan as an exchange student in 2011.、Uh, at the time, I took his Japanese politics course at the Center for Japanese Studies. And a few, a few years later, after I returned to Nagoya upon graduating in the United States, I audited one of his courses on NGOs.、Uh, Dr. Potter is a fascinating guy,、uh, which I think you'll pick up on in the, in the interview.、Uh, he's extremely articulate and charismatic. He can be both serious and amusing, and he tells damn good stories.、Uh, I certainly can't do him any justice, but I believe that his role at Nanzan. Uh, not just as a professor, but as an administrator as well, is really worth commending here.
And Dr. Potter is the epitome of hard work and good planning uh, and an inspiration to all of his students, uh, myself included. I hope you enjoy the podcast and be certain to listen to the last portion as I feel his comments on purposefulness are extremely valuable to those looking to make it in Japan. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll be back in April. Okay, Dr. Potter. Elliot, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. It's good to see you too. Thanks very much for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. Yeah. So. Uh, one thing before we get into the conversation mm. that I might have told you this before. Mm. I'm not sure. But you are actually my longest ongoing acquaintance in Japan. Is that right? Yes. Is that right? Yeah, because I first met you when I was an exchange student at Nanzan. Mm-hmm. And this would be now eight years ago. You're kidding. Yeah, because it was <laughs> it was the year that the earthquake and the tsunami happened. Right. It was the program that, yeah, it was the program that got canceled uh, halfway through and right. half the students got sent home and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was taking a uh, a Japanese politics mm-hmm. class with mm-hmm. you. Um, and so you are now my longest ongoing acquaintance in Japan. Well, why did it take so long for us to sit down and do this then? Yeah, <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. Um you are, you are one of the more interesting, one of the more unique people I've met in the eight years my, uh, that I've lived here. And I would like you to, to start, if you don't okay. mind, by describing a little bit about where you're from mm-hmm. and what it is that brought you here to Japan and Nagoya okay. specifically. Okay. Um, let me, a little bit about myself. Yeah. Um, I'm an American, um, yes. raised in California, so I really um, consider myself a Californian. Um, yeah, I'm American who's never been to California, so right? yeah. Well, you, sh- you should go someday. We're of a different ilk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, I was raised in California, went to school in California. Yeah. And um, did my undergraduate and my graduate um, study at two different California universities. I got my PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara, mm. in 1992. Okay. And before that, um, I remember I, I was raised... This is a little bit of background, I suppose. Yeah, I was raised in a very, in a very cosmopolitan family in a very small town mm. in North Central California. Um, both of my parents were Cal graduates, yeah. and my my mother was a member of the AAUW, the American Association of University Women. Mm. And as a result of that, every year in the early fall. Yeah. Uh, we would have an international student who was studying at the University of California, Berkeley for the weekend. Mm. And so from a very young age, I was sort of raised on who's coming from where this year. And, yeah. and so when I was in high school, I applied for study abroad with the American Field Service Program. Okay. And um, it was ridiculous. at the t- This is 1978, mm. um, before Japan was a big thing. Mm. And... Um, the year, um, the year before I went to Japan, the first time I went to Japan, I was doing a short-term study, like a three-week three week, um, Spanish language program in Guadalajara, and I came across a book on Japan, and it bit me. Do you remember the book? H. Paul Varley's The Samurai, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and it was you know sort of a standard sort of a general reader uh, book about the you know, sort of what the military history of Japan, very slim book. Yeah. But when you're 15 years old, it's you know um, mm. it was in English, fortunately. So I picked it up in this bookstore in Guadalajara, and that <laughs> got me. Yeah. Um, so the following year, when I applied for the American Field Service program, I put Japan as my first choice. And you have to remember, this is 1978. This is before, um, for example, Ezra Vogel's Japan is number one, before right. Japan really hit the big time. Right, right. It was coming up um, economically and as it re sort of returning to perhaps a former status as an important international power. Mm. But at the time, it wasn't there yet. Right. So, and most people, most of my uh, fellow students in the program put an English-speaking country as their first choice. I, being 15 years old and quite naive, I said, well, Japan is my first choice. <laughs> and my fourth choice, which I wrote in, which is, um, um, they asked for you for three choices, and Japan was my first, and I wrote in number four, I will go anywhere. <laughs> and in 1978, that meant I went to Japan. And I lived in Miyagi, um, just yeah, south okay. of Sendai for a year with a host family there. Yeah. Turning point in my life. Mm. And um, so I then went back to the United States, went to, to school at a state university in California, mm. and went on to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Came back to Japan um, to do my dissertation field work in 1990. So somewhere along the line, I think that, year, that first year in, in Japan in 1978 sort of got me interested in Japan. Right. Um, and not just as sort of an avocation or an interest, but something I actually might want to think about as a career. Right, sure. So I came back, um, spent a year, which was a miserable year, actually, in, mm. Sendai, in Sendai, Tohoku University. Okay. Very good university. Yeah. But it was a very difficult year because when you're doing your dissertation field work, mm. that's all you do sure. for a year. And uh, But it was important because I got my field work done. I finished... Um, um, at, at Santa Barbara um, about a year later, in 1992. Okay. And um, that set me up to do something I really didn't expect. Mm. Um, By the way, uh, what was your research topic? My well, research topic was Japan's uh, foreign aid, which is at the time was, okay. a real, it was a hot topic. I got lucky um, choosing that topic because a lot of people were interested in Japanese foreign policy Hmm. And foreign aid was sort of the centerpiece of it, because okay. Japan doesn't have a military it can really use abroad. Right. Um, foreign aid is is asked to do a lot of the heavy lifting of not only economic development but hmm. maybe security policy or diplomatic relations and stuff like that. So okay. it turned out to be. In fact, I'm writing a paper with a former graduate student right now that is yet another dimension of Japanese foreign aid hmm. that I hadn't really thought about before. So I got interested in that. That's what I did my dissertation on. Yeah. Um, this is 1992, 1991, 1992, which was the middle of an academic recession in the United States. So mm. um, fortunately, with that PhD, I got a job in, of all places, Kentucky. Really? Yeah. My neck of the woods. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but Kentucky in that day was not exactly a hotbed of Asian studies. Um, <laughs> But yeah. it was, but it was a contrary to today, right? Right. <laughs> well, the University of Kentucky has actually made a strategic choice to have good Asian scholars there, and I've worked with oh, really? two or three of them. Yes, and they're they're good people. Oh, okay. Um, 
but in general, the Midwest is, if the American Midwest is much more Europe, European oriented than it is Asian oriented. Certainly, yeah. And for me, coming from California, that was, yeah. that was kind of interesting because I was used to. Which was more foreign, going to Japan your first time or going to Kentucky? That, 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 that's a straight up crapshoot. Yeah. Um, whatever the dice come up, that, that, that's what it was. Um, my wife um, is Japanese and she was coming uh. from Amsterdam. She worked in, at a Japanese school in Amsterdam for four years. We got married and lived in Kentucky. And I'm hard pressed to tell you yeah. which one of us had the greater culture shock. <laughs> because she was expecting California mm. and I suppose I was too. Right. And the, 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 the lower Midwest, by the way, um, has a great deal of charm about it, mm. a great deal to recommend it. Um, not least of which is the cost of living compared to the coasts. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about um, that. You can raise a family yeah. in the greater Cincinnati area, which is where I was. But yeah. it's not California. Um, sure. And it, it's not, and, and so, but anyway, so I, I got, had, got a tenure track job there, which was I was very grateful for because mm-hmm. this is 1992, the year I was on the market. The Soviet Union collapsed, and mm. with it, Soviet studies as right. a discipline in political science. I had colleagues who, who were literally picking up the wreckage of their yeah. job searches <laughs> in September of 1991. It was awful. So I got lucky that I had decided to do Japan and something that yeah. was you know, a, a sort of a, a, a going topic at the time. Mm. So I, anyway, I, I, got, I got tenure in Kentucky, started a family there. And then in 2000, and actually in 1998, mm. I, came, I did my sabbatical and I was um, offered um, a position in the economics departments at Nanzan. Okay, and in econ? Economics, mm. yeah, for, as, as a visiting faculty member. Okay. I came back for a semester, and the reason for that was that Nanzan was putting together a brand new campus in Seto, hmm. and um, a brand new policy studies, interdisciplinary policy studies program, which is where I am today, Right. Um, also at the Seto campus, and they were looking for talent, and so hmm. my sabbatical in 1998 was sort of, what, sort of a dry run sure. for a formal job offer to come back in 2000. Right, um, and I came back in two thousand. And I, if mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a separate question or not, but why I came back? But uh, no, well, I you said you uh, came back to Nanzan. Was that referring? Uh, does that mean coming back to Japan? You mean, or were, were you familiar? Were you affiliated with Nanzan prior to that job? Right. Well, it, like I said, in the fall of nineteen ninety-eight, yeah. I did a, I did my sabbatical in yeah. the economics department at Nansan. Okay, uh, okay. I, I, um, they asked me to teach a couple of courses and then I, I did my research and um, I thought I was going to do one topic and it actually became a much bigger topic that became a book mm. with, a, with a colleague of mine back at my university in Kentucky, Northern Kentucky University, by the way. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, am, I still have academic ties, professional ties with that university. Um, mm. But anyway, so... Um, I think my sabbatical um, in 1998 sort of convinced Nansan that first of all I wasn't radical and I wasn't rabid, and um, I could you know, I brush my teeth and stuff. So they invited me back right. <laughs> um, as a full-time faculty member in 2000 yeah. in, in, in the, the Department of uh, Policy Studies at the, at the Central Campus, and I came yeah. back. 
and thought I'd come for a couple. I, I had tenure mm. in the United States, and um, for those of you who may, for your for your listeners, yeah, who don't know this, tenure is a big deal. You work, you get a one-year contract for six years, and in your sixth year, the university decides if they want to keep you until retirement or for they life, let, yeah. yeah, if they want to let you go. Right. So it's it's a uh, it's fairly high pressure. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. So I had I was two years into that. I got um, got my sabbatical um, a year after my after tenure, mm. and then about a, you know, a year and a half later, I was I came back to Nanzan. So when I first came back, I took a two year leave, and thought, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll go yeah. back to um, NKU. Yeah. Um, and probably have a pretty good career there, actually. Um, <laughs> but. I came here and basically the offer was we would like you to teach classes in your research field. Of course, I was, if I was going to be in Japan, it was going to be a whole lot easier to do Japanese politics, Japanese foreign policy, sure. Japanese foreign aid. Um, and um, so the way I like to remember it is two years became 10 years and it'll be 19 years this July. So yeah. I guess I'm here. Yeah. So that's where I am right now. Yeah. Well, I've noticed a similar trend, or at least, you know, in, with myself, a year and a half mm. became four and a half, mm. became currently ongoing, and right. I'm now into my seventh year, yeah. right? And who knows what, what right. that's going to become. Um, that's, that's really interesting. What were your, uh, talk to me a little bit about your experiences in academia in the United States mm. versus academia in Japan. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, they're very different systems. One of the gripes I have, if mm. I may speak frankly, <laughs> uh, about Japanese universities is that they have, most of them, and Nanzan is a good example of this, have a dual track system where that if they mm. offer a full-time position to a Japanese faculty member, it's a full-time position from, from the first day. Okay. With the foreign faculty, international faculty, you're offered typically a three-year contract. And in, in, in my day, that went on for, um, was it a two-year contract? I said three two-year contracts. I finally got. I finally got off the the uh, the the, uh, the wheel yeah. in my seventh year. So yeah. basically, it was like doing tenure again. Right. <laughs> um, and I have colleagues who came to Nanzan earlier than that, and they went as many as ten years. The law has changed in a, in the last few years. So basically, now. Um, you're in your fifth year because of the changes in the law in, 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 in involving contract employment. In a, a full-time contract employee in Japan at any company in Japan, mm. in year five can request a lifetime contract. Mm, mm. And the company has to either fish or cut bait at that point. Right. In other words, they have to make a decision. Do we keep this per person permanently or do we just terminate the contract in this year? Sure. So it's gotten a little bit easier, but there is it, it is this dual system, mm. and frankly, um, it. I was told I remember in my second or third year, when I was actually in my first administrative position at Nanzan, mm. uh, you'll be okay. Which is a very Japanese um, <laughs> comment, and it turned out to be the case. Mm. But you'll be okay, and. The university understands its contractual obligations are two very different statements. Sure. Um, and this is something that frankly still gripes. It still uh -huh. rubs the wrong way. 
that and Nanzong, by the way, is a, in many ways a very good university. It's um, mm. in terms of its treatment of international faculty. Yeah. Um, but there is this thing about that, right. and, if, and having having a tenured position and a PhD. Mm. Um, when I came here, that was something that I did think about in those first two years while I was here. Yeah, sure. Um, that's one of the other things too I noticed. Things are changing also in Japan, but for example, and this is the early 90s, in the early 1990s in my field, hmm. to get a tenure track position, you had to have the PhD in hand. I, had, um, okay. I remember uh, with several fellow graduate students being on the market at that time, and one of them, I remember, he, he was also hired at the State University in Kentucky, and they were very good to him because his data went bad halfway mm -hmm. through um, his third chapter. And so he went to that university without a PhD. Right. And the conditions in those days were, if you come to us without a PhD, in other words, we offer you a, a tenure-track position, mm. if you haven't completed the dissertation by the time you take up employment with us, we will give you an additional year to continue to c complete your PhD. If you mm. don't finish it, by your, the end of your first year of employment, we will give you an additional one-year contract and then you're gone. Okay. Okay, so it was very, very, okay. Um, in Japan, um, again, a lot of the private universities, actually a lot of even the, the public universities, have many people who don't have um, PhDs. Hmm. Okay, so the yeah, master's yeah. degrees, or what we call ABD, all but dissertation. Um, <laughs> you, you finished your master's, you took... Right. Uh, PhD courses, but you didn't finish a dissertation. Right. Um, and a lot of the, um, that's changing in Japan more in the American direction, I think, which is basically a PhD is now the require is becoming more and more the requirement mm. for a full time, in the Japanese case, virtually tenured position. Right. When you enter. Right. Right. Um, so things are changing, but that's something, that's something I've noticed. Different cultures about what is academic competence, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah, sure. What do you think is, is leading to that, to that change, though? Uh, is it an increase in maybe foreign researchers or foreign PhDs who have entered into Japan? Or do you, is there yeah. anything that you think is responsible for that shift? Just uh, in general, demanding a higher standard of academic excellence? amongst universities here? I see three things. Mm. Uh, one is that there are a, there's a large number of Japanese scholars who have gone to study abroad mm. and are coming home with PhDs from their home universities. Okay. And, that, and, and that's, in Japanese academia, that still has a, a premium attached to it. Mm. Um, to have gotten, let's say, your master's, at, for example, Tokyo University, but to have gotten your PhD at Princeton, for example, yeah, sure, or Yale, or Oxford, or you know, the University of California, University of, University of Michigan, in my field, yeah, these are all these are all these all come back. You come back with a premium um, when you do that. Yep. So you have, I think, a number of Japanese scholars who understand how the game works on that end. They, their their other option would be to pursue a tenure track position. At an American or another, another, right, another right. country's universities. In general, uh, so that's one thing. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I think Japanese universities have been under pressure anyway to increase their academic standards mm. uh, because you have a declining Japanese uh, student population. So the right. question of how do we increase our intake leads to considering the possibility of attracting students from abroad. Mm. And therefore, they very often come with expectations from their home countries. Yeah. And the third thing is that international academia is a changing game and it's becoming more competitive. Mm. 20 years ago, nobody thought uh, seriously about pursuing higher education at a Chinese university. Right. I remember when I first got a, uh, my job at uh, NKU, I had a colleague in another department whose wife was Chinese and she had applied for the master's program at mm. that university and they wouldn't accept her because they wouldn't accept her baccalaureate degree from a Chinese university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that um, that today is it. China is a different ball. Sure, sure. Leading Chinese universities. If you look at the um, the standard QS, for example, rankings of um, even Asian universities, Chinese universities are now in the top twenty. Mm. Uh, Japanese universities, frankly, are struggling. Yeah. Um, yeah. National University National University of Singapore is year in year out top sure. dog in the Asian rankings. Sure. And so what's happening, it's, it, it's beginning, it's becoming clear, I think, to Japanese academics, and many of them are quite, and by the way, I have, um, let, me be, let me be careful what I say here, <laughs> um, Japanese academics on average are, are as good as academics mm. anywhere else, but the way that you get tenured, you know, mm. the, 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 the academic environment is such that I think they understand that if you're going to be in the international game, you have to be up to international standards. Sure. So those three things are, I think, contributing to changes in Japanese higher education. Mm. That's interesting. So you, uh, you take the position at Nanzan, and as you said, two years turned into six, turned into ten, yeah. and on. And so now you are... You're in the policy studies uh, faculty, but you are the director. You're the program director now. I'm the program director for the graduate program. For the graduate yes. program. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, the, uh, not for the uh, the undergraduate program. Is it, we're uh, basically the graduate program is sort of what on top of the uh, or sure. sort of um, based in the um, the undergraduate department. Yeah. Um, so I am the, the the program director for. The policy studies program in the Graduate School of Social Science, which okay. is actually this policy studies, economics, and marketing and finance, and the three of them were mm. amalgamated a few years ago. And so, I'm a director of one branch of the, of the graduate, the big graduate school. I see, I see. And talk to me a little bit about policy studies in general, mm -hmm. and then also now your current field of research. Okay. Policy studies at Nanzan is an international. Uh, mm and interdisciplinary program uh, based in the social sciences. Okay. Uh, we had a very, we've had a very long conversation over the years about that. Um, mm. Nanzan's original forte was humanities, foreign languages in particular. Yeah, sure. And we've tried to carve out, especially in the last two years when we moved, they, they closed the, the central campus, we moved back to the main campus, we mo or we moved over to the main campus. Yeah, and just to give listeners an idea who are not familiar with the layout of Aichi Prefecture. Seto is a city northeast. Yes. 
of of Nagoya, where yes. the Nanzan main campus is yeah. located. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. So we moved from the from Seto, which is basically now a suburban community, right, of the great of the greater Nagoya area, back into the city of Nagoya, which is where Nanzan's um, Yamazato campus has been since 1974. Right. Um, so when we came back, we had we had a, we had to think about our mission, and we just, this decision was to focus more on social sciences, but to keep mm. it interdisciplinary. So it's okay. not like a law program, it's not like an economics program, or let's say marketing and finance, which are very, which are much um, more narrowly focused. Right, right. So we have economists, sociologists, mm. um, anthropologists, um, I'm a political scientist. Right. Uh, we also have um, some colleagues also from the humanities, so it is, mm. it is a, designed to be a, a um, an interdisciplinary program. Sure, sure. Um, so that, that that that's our program. We have a graduate program with a master's and a PhD on top of that. Yeah. That's what I administer. Right, right. And so, in fact, this weekend I'm getting ready to to um, provide some opening guidance to our incoming mm. crop of graduate students. Actually, so, yeah. yeah. So. Um, but, um, rallying my current graduate students to, you know, <laughs> to to show up for the welcome party and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, so. Is it a good catch for you guys? I mean, obviously, uh, the the number of students, mm. college age students in Japan, is is on the decline. It's on the decline. Two things are going on right now mm. that, frankly, I think are a challenge. By the way, not only for us, but I think for any. I think um, non natural sciences or non-engineering graduate programs yeah. in Japan, yeah. which is you have on the one hand, you have a, a declining um, student population. The other is the economy is pretty good right now and high job hiring. Compared to 10 years ago, it's a, it's a yeah. lot easier to get not only a job, but the job you want now. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Was it the night um, the um, uh, Yeah, I guess you could say the percentage of people who get Job yeah, offers, right? Job offers, and the number, the average number of job offers a student gets now, right? Um, for a university like Nanzan, um, yeah, is increasing. Oh, so, <laughs> um, students from Nanzan could get yeah. a get a job offer in their sleep right now in this market, right? Like. I, I, which is good for them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, which is good for them. But what that means is the Japanese students mm. typically will want to go into the into the job market. I, I, uh, last week we had an um, undergraduate graduation party and actually one of my brighter students came to talk to me mm. about the possibility of graduate school, but she wants to work for a while first. And I'm sure her parents are probably saying, yes, it would be nice if you worked for a while so <laughs> mom and dad can get out from under the burden of your education expenses. Yeah. Um, but for them, the job market is is, is looking attractive. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the structural problems, frankly, with graduate programs in Japan is outside of sort of what the technical fields or the, the natural sciences. Mm. Um, companies don't place a premium on a master's. That's right. So what we find is that we have much better success with two other categories of students. One are international students. Mm. Because, for example, Chinese, Taiwanese, um, Korean, yeah. um, Students, students from Southeast Asia, yeah. will very often find that when they go home, having a master's degree from a Japanese university helps them in the job market back home. Mm. Okay, um, so we do. We um, our our intake levels for international students is actually quite good. Right. right. Also, we find um, a certain number of non-traditional students, uh, students who have been out 
um, in the, um, the job market. Oh, I see. Or to I come see. back to for a master's for have or some for work a experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, this year, we, interesting, we have a couple coming back. And one in particular is very interesting. Um, is coming back while holding a full-time academic position and wants to pursue <laughs> a PhD. In okay. other words, um, again, as I mentioned just a few moments before, mm. with the changes in Japanese higher education, mm. having a PhD is now becoming, I think, sort of a stepping stone to promotion once you get hired. Mm. In other words, if you want to be a full professor okay. or if you want to perhaps pursue certain kinds of research yeah, sure. um, um, positions, then being a full professor or being a PhD carries a premium with it. And so we have right. somebody who's coming back to basically uh, write, write a dissertation um, at, with a number of years of academic experience already under that person's belt. Mm. So it's a very interesting, um, that's, that, well, I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting mix, it sounds. You yeah. Know, lots of international students on top of, like yeah. you said, people with real world experience. Right. We would, yeah. we, frankly, we would like more um, Japanese students. Um, we have very good students in the undergraduate program, mm. and any number of them who would be successful in, um, in a graduate program. But I think maybe family pressures and sort of cultural expectations, yeah. social expectations tend to mitigate against that. Again, Japanese companies. I think still have the idea that they're going to train you to do things their way. Um, oh, absolutely! I, any number of my graduating seniors spent, you know, having turned their their graduation theses in in January, hmm. have spent the better part of the last two months doing what they call kenshu, basically training right. on the job right. training. Um, or some of them were actually doing that in the fall <laughs> while they were still trying to write their theses, which yeah. is, I think, a I think it's a problem, frankly. But, uh, <laughs> um, we can talk about that maybe later. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, um, that's okay. But if you think about it, for example, the American expectation, or even in Singapore, no, or Britain, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you're coming to a company with a master's, let's say, especially with a, a master's of business administration, mm. they expect the full package when you arrive. Yep. In other words, they're not going to tell you how. IBM does things, they're going to expect you to bring to IBM something that they can't do. Right. And that's, um, that I think, in, especially maybe I have, I have to say it maybe in the Nagoya area, is mm -hmm. still something of maybe what, what perhaps a psychological or perhaps a, a cultural barrier. Yeah, oh, absolutely. absolutely. It's very deeply, it's very deeply seated. <laughs> um, they, they call that what's it, the Shokunin Waza. Yeah. Um, here, um, that you, you 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 the company does things or we do things a certain way because that you know things have been handed down. Right. You right. Know, f you know, from a prior cohort, a pr prior generation, and so on, which mm. has its merits, but is can can also be stifling. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and it's not it's not necessarily the best way to run things when you have. Uh, shrinking labor force and yeah. <laughs> you don't have the artisan there to train <laughs> all of your employees and and also you know the amount of time that it takes to then train someone and build, get them up to speed within your company 
and turn it into someone who can actually, you know, uh, contribute, right. can produce within your company. In, in the United States and in other job markets, like you said, right out of graduation when you're hired, they're ready for you to contribute. Yeah. Right? That's the expectation. In Japan, you know, they have these expressions, ishi no wei ni mo san nen. Right. This is a Japanese uh, idiom that refers to sitting on a rock right. for three years, right? And it refers to patience and developing one's skills over time. And these are virtues in Japanese society. But then again, like, you know, the expectation is that this person isn't going to contribute for the next three to five years, right? We're just going to train him. And, you know, quite frankly, Japanese companies are running out of time. <laughs> I, I think they are. In yeah. frank, I think depending on the students who are hired, um, they're quite capable. My my department was created around the idea of identifying problems in society and then trying to figure out ways to solve them. Mm. Um, this sort of become a, a custom, a norm. It's not written on paper anymore. But the norm in my department, mm. assuming that a, this year, you know, a fourth year student is writing, say, a three to five chapter dissertation, huh. uh, a graduation thesis. Yeah. Okay. Which is ex everybody does that in my department. Everybody writes a graduation thesis. Yeah. Um, your your final chapter is a policy recommendations chapter. Okay. So not only do you say do you let's say look at the issue of let's say poverty mm. and let's say government or international organization responses to poverty, you then finish up by saying, well, what should be done about this? Okay. Okay. Which is you know. We understand that as training students to go out, go go out and spend to do something besides spend three years sitting on a rock, um, <laughs> watching the master, um, right, right. You know, you know, maybe cleaning the place up or something, or or, or right, thinking right. about thinking about the problems that an organization faces in in, in a different way because they're quite creative students. Mm. Um, and when you t sit down and you talk to them, and you look at what they do. Um, they can be quite creative, quite energetic, yeah. quite innovative, and um, that's, that's something that it, it is unfortunate that I think they're, they're running up against this problem. Mm. Um, and of course, yeah, as you say, uh, Japanese companies are, are running out of running out of time here. If yeah. I may make one one small comment, yeah, on yeah, that, of course, as an educator, yeah, looking at the looking at um, not as a graduate program director, but as an undergraduate. Mm instructor and undergraduate advisor yeah. for seminar students. Um, I look at the way internships are done <laughs> um, mm. here. And I, know, I understand that, it's, I, I remember talking to Japanese company representatives from the IT area some years ago. Yeah. And they look at it as, as a burden rather than an yeah. opportunity. Yeah. I'm, and I'm reminded back when I was still a graduate student and a teaching assistant, mm. I remember writing a letter of recommendation for a kid. I still remember his, his name, Art Auerbach. And Art went off to a semester in Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, the um, the uh, Washington Int Internship Program, which has been around for many, many years. Yeah. And Art went to the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, <laughs> just in case you were wondering, uh, Donald Trump is not the first president who's tried to gut that agency. And Art went in the middle of the Reagan administration, so, oh, they, were, they, were, so they were desperate for yeah. warm bodies. Yeah, they were running on interns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and um, so Art ended up at a desk, 
administering a program for three months, like in designing and innovating <laughs> and then getting a, a, a program off the ground um, during his fall semester in Washington because there wasn't anybody else could, who could take over That's the program. And this is, this, is a, you know, this is a 19-year-old kid yeah. um, in his third year of college. And um, <laughs> you know, imagine what he could say in a job interview going into a company. You know, a Fortune oh, man, Talk about your, yeah, your resume builder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, I wish, I wish that that was better understood here. Mm. That they may be 19 or 20-year-old students. Mm. Um, and so they may be inexperienced. Yeah. But they have ambitions and they have talent and... You know, if you're going to, th you know, you throw them into the water and pretty much they swim. Right. And that is my experience with them. And that would be, that would be something, that is frankly something that in, compared to like the, the Kenshu system here. Right, right. To have a better developed internship in a, in a, and a strategic mm. sense of an internship program mm. would not only benefit companies because they're getting... Students are getting credit for this, right? But they're not getting paid for this, right? Which doesn't hurt a company's bottom line. Um, on the other hand, it gives the students gives students real practical job experience, sure. real world, real world problem solving experience, um, and it benefits companies. Yeah. I think here part of the problem is companies are shy about being seen as maybe promising a student a job. Mm. Um, yeah, that's that's certainly uh, an issue graduate. potentially. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed with my work at Global Aichi is that uh, internships are starting to uh, be focused on a little more. Uh, even just a few years ago, like when I was, you know, doing my my master's, mm. you know, I was a student here as well. There was very little, or just slowly budding talk of internships when I started this program and be in in change to the sort of supporting right. position that I'm currently in. Now you see the Aichi prefectural government, you see people at universities like your own in Nagoya mm -hmm. University right. uh, really pushing internships. And I think this is a good thing. But the problem is for the, com the companies, like you said, the companies involved don't look at it as an opportunity. Um, at most, they, they, at best they look at it as, you know, CSR. Right, a way yeah. for them to appeal yeah. <laughs> outside, right, right, right. saying, "Oh, look at look at our social contribution." They don't look at it as an opportunity to work with, like you said, extremely young creative students for no cost. The biggest concern is who are we going to put in charge of this person for a week to a, you know three weeks, and and how is that? How is this going to affect their productivity during that time? Right. Right. That, that that is an issue. I, I yeah. my understanding is the typical internship is mostly shadowing. Yeah. A student follows a company employee around for a week and sort of learns what that person does. Right, right. Um, which I can understand if, if the student's only gonna be there for ten days to two weeks, which I that's pretty much the norm. Yep. Then it doesn't really introduce the company to the student, nor does it really introduce the, the uh, student to the company. Right. One of the things I do see, and this is something that's, I think, better understood, um, for example, in the United States, mm. is an internship is not only about companies training mm. 
potential employees, but also for students to get a sense if that's really what they want to do right. when they graduate. Sure. Um, and that, that, that's an issue. I, um, when I was um, advisor to the president of Nanzan University some years ago, I remember mm. we, we talked about this. And you know the the the, the Kate Andre companies were unhappy that um, students were changing jobs. Mm. Of course, my 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 response to that was, well, you can reintroduce meaningful lifetime employment, and students would probably be a lot more loyal. But that was breaking down at the time. Mm. But um, part of the problem I see is that you know students are under pressure to get a job. Yeah. Um, and the, the labor hiring system in Japan is so rigid in terms yeah. of when that happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a constant curse for the universities because we never know when Keidan and the Keizai Doyukai are going to decide it's open season on students. Right. And as an advisor for students in their final year of an undergraduate program or in the second year of a master's mm. program, mm. for example, um, when they're trying to do what is in many, many is the capstone of their research at the university. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, it's a real problem. On the one hand, tr advising them on their research while they are scrambling for, for work. Sure. And so they're under tremendous pressure yeah. to get a job. And I have any number of students who, after three years, decide that's really not what they wanted to do. Right. Um, we had a, had a student, I, I, this is probably verboten to say this, um, so you can cut this out of the program later if you want to. <laughs> um, kid I mentored three years ago, delightful, delightful student, mm. very, very serious. Um, got a job at the airport yeah. as ground staff, and she showed up <laughs> in academic affairs at Nanzan last October. She said she just didn't like it. It wasn't what she wanted to do. She mm. was really unhappy there, and she said she's in academic affairs at, at my at Nanzan now. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> and much happier um, as a result. And that's the, that's the thing is that, you know, career changes yeah. um, are, I think, a normal part of mm. a work life mm. anymore. They're becoming more normal, I think, in Japan. But an internship system, a properly thought out internship system, yeah. might steer students away from what they thought they wanted to do, but three or five years, and once they've sat on that rock for three years, yeah, exactly. and the company's invested in that, the rock sitting for three years, it would reduce the number of students who say, gee, this is not what I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And so the company hasn't lost three years of salary, mm. uh, pension benefits, uh, waiting for that student to become something that that student wasn't going to be right well it gives you an extra an extra strike i guess you could say you know yeah um and, and it's to me it's quite obvious as someone in their late 20s you know the thoughts about what i wanted to do have changed dramatically over the last seven years uh if you go back even further than that i definitely didn't imagine that i would be living in japan right um so yeah, you you have to to leave yourself open to have those experiences. Leave yourself open to the thought that plans might change, yeah. right? And internships, I agree, it's a it, it is an excellent opportunity uh, to do that. Um, I'd like to go back to the original first question because mm -hmm. this was a two part question. What are you focused on now? Well. 
as I mentioned before we got started, I'm perhaps uh, closer to retirement than I am to entry-level job. Yeah. So I do think about retirement. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say this. Um, people ask me sometimes, why, are you why have you stayed so long? Uh -huh. And it's something to think about. Yeah. Is that the way the Japanese pension system works, if you're a, a, mm. a foreign employee, you have a, about a two-year window. And if you leave your, your, your position within two or three years, you get all of your, your paid-in pension benefits back. If you don't, yeah. then you're eligible in 20 years. Really? Yes. So um, what that means is, you know, if you, in other words, if you're going to stay the course, you, you stay for the long run. And this is something to think about right. if you're seeking employment in Japan. How right. long do you expect to be here? In my case, it was fairly simple. I mean, like I got here and it was what I wanted to do. Right. What am I focused on right now? Um, as a full professor mm. and as an administrator, I did the classic is the classic balance between wanting to do my research. Mm. Um, I am at the point now where I look about retirement mm. age. I think I have one book <laughs> left in me. Okay, yeah. so I'm focused on actually going back. This is something that a colleague who retired about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, um, suggested to me. He said, "Look at your old, your original dissertation topic. Go back and ask yourself what has changed." Hmm. I actually did that with my my undergraduate seminar this last year. We went back and we did, did, did some, some real basic yeah. data gathering, and so um, so I think I want to do that. Mm. Um, on the other hand, one of the things I've found. This is what in close to twenty years at Nanzan. For my third year, I've been pretty much doing administration mm. constantly, different administrative positions. So <laughs> I suppose I'm going to be doing that until I finish up too. Yeah. yeah. Um, which begs the bigger question: What are you going to do when it's all over? Mm. And frankly, I don't have the first idea. So yeah. <laughs> I have I have an Australian colleague who's thought about that much more clearly than I have. Actually, so. <laughs> Uh, you you said uh, what what's the what's the timeline for you then? If you've got one one more book in you, how um, long does it take for you to to punch out a book? Um, um, everybody thinks they're going to write a book in a year. Yeah. Um, the only um, the only people who do a book a year are professors at um, first first rate universities are guys like Isaac Asimov. Um, <laughs> who basically have their ghostwriters do most of the work or their graduate students most, do most of the work, I think. Yeah. Um, a book, an academic book, takes five to ten, to, five to ten years to do it properly. Mm. From the time you have an idea to the time that the publisher mm. gets it out um, in hardback or Kindle or whatever they're working on these days. Right. Um, and it's the nature of the game. Some, again, colleagues with very light teaching loads, maybe only graduate students at first-rate universities where they get paid to research. Sure, um, sure. In fact, many of them are actively discouraged, I think, from undergraduate teaching. <laughs> can mm. do it faster. Yeah. But assuming you're at a university where you have undergraduate teaching responsibilities, perhaps graduate teaching responsibilities, you're expected to do research, you're expected to do administration yeah. as well. Administrative responsibilities, then it, yeah. Then it takes five to ten years. I just wrote yeah. something recently for my uh, program's um, webpage about that, mm. that looking back over my career, I have two-year projects, five-year projects, and ten-year projects. Mm. 
and a book is a five to ten year project. Okay. Assuming you want to do it properly. Right. So a quick mm. change of topic. Yes. Mm. Moving from Japanese mm. academia to Japanese society as a mm. whole mm -hmm. and your experiences over the past. Well, since you moved back now, it's been how many years? Since I moved to Japan? Yeah. In, in 19 years this August. Okay. This July. Yeah. Um, I spent a year in Sendai as a graduate student. Right. And a year in the Sendai area mm. um, as a high school student. So Right. Back in the early 70s, you said. Late 70s? It'll be 40 years this year. I can't believe it. Yeah. So, uh, how has Japan changed? It's changed, it has changed a lot. Mm. It has changed a lot. Um, just it, um, as, an, as a non-Japanese, you always chafe at, at, at the, the, the little things. Yeah. But the little things are a lot smaller than they used to be. <laughs> um, you don't get stared at. Um, one of the things mm. I will say I like about yeah. Nagoya, one of yeah. the things I like about Nagoya, Nagoyans assume, I think I've told you this, mm. um, Nagoyans assume that if you're here, you speak Japanese. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually that yes, is true. As, compa that's true. as compared to, for example, Tokyo or other or places. Osaka, yeah, yeah, that's true. And so, it's, in that sense, it's much easier to live here if mm. you actually speak Japanese. And um, yeah, and you're not tired of having to explain that you speak Japanese right, <laughs> when right, you meet right. someone for the first time every single day. Right, yeah, right. that can get annoying for sure. Yeah, so um, that has gotten a lot. Um, a lot um, easier. I will mm. say this is something it's something like a wave, if I can if I use that that uh, that uh, image, because for a while, um, for example, with young people, mm. there was in, when I was as a graduate student. Remember, this is roughly 1990. So after 1990, mm. a lot of Japanese really wanted to go abroad, and you know, in, um, this generation of young people is much less interested in that in general. Mm. Um, so it's sort of, in some ways, I think this may be about cultural expectations or sort of more real realistic expectations about Japan's economic place, things like that. Okay. Uh, frankly, I think uh, social media has a lot to do with this. Mm. Um, the ja young Japanese individuals are, are can be quite exceptional, mm. but in general, even college age students, college students are maybe less intrepid than mm. they were 25 years ago. Yeah. But they're as intrepid, or maybe more intrepid than they were forty years ago. Okay, so, if, if so, that that hence the okay, wave, the I see, wave I see. the image there. Yeah, so, come back around. Um, people ask me about that. How is it to live in Japan? It's it's, you know, or how do you like Japan? It's a place to live. Mm. I have a house here, um, which means I have a mortgage here. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Every once in a while, I do get somebody who says, "Oh, you're an American. When are you going home?" Yeah, and my answer is six thirty, <laughs> or when the bank of the Goya says the mortgage is paid off, whichever <laughs> comes first. But um, I mean, it, I, I'm here. I live here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's as good a place to live as any as I've been, and better than mm. better than a lot of places you could live. I take students to Manila yeah. um, every summer for two weeks mm. as a part of their, their uh, uh, now a, a one month program in my department. Yeah. And you know, I would rather be here than there. You know, yeah. I mean, I, by the way, I like I like I like going to Manila. I yeah. have colleagues there. It's a, um, but 
would I want to live in the Philippines, at least in, 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 in Metro Manila? No, not really. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, Especially I admit, under this administration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's an easy place to live. It's a yeah. safe place to live, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah. Um, um, I tell, I, I advised you, I'm sure I advised you and others when, when I teach in the, uh, the Center for Japanese Studies, mm. Um, it's possible to get in trouble in Japan if you go looking for it, but um, yeah. it, it, it's, it's harder to do that than it might be in other places in the world. Sure. Trouble um, that it tends not to find you here. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So what? I mean, it's in terms of my career, it's a better place to be. Yeah. Um, how has it changed? It's, gosh, I mean, when you, the, it's the, the, it's the, the frog in the, uh, the, um, the bowl of boiling water, I think, when you've been here long enough, <laughs> you, you know there's, things are changing, but what has changed? Right, you know? right. So, and this is, I suppose, the problem of being inside for this long. That's an interesting, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, phenomenon. Just that it's, I can't, it's very hard for me to recall my first experiences of culture shock in Japan. And obviously it was, it was something that was, it, I remember being at the time, it being quite profound, mm. and I remember feeling very, you know, I'm in a foreign environment, I feel out of sorts, I don't know what's going on with these toilets, and mm. they've got these faucets <laughs> on top of it, and things like that, right? But other than that, it's very hard, actually, for me to re recall distinct, distinct uh, sort of matters from which I felt culture shock. Mm. It's all very vague. It's like that's been, it's been, it's like a pixelated image in my mind now. Yeah. You know, like, like what you said, over time, the details sort of, they lose their clarity. And it's sort of, yeah, a culture shock. Well, I guess I had that, but yeah. mm, I live here now and yeah. I feel more culture shock when I go back to the United States. I do, <laughs> I, I do feel that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you get used to something. You get used to a place, a used to way, a, a way of doing things. Yeah, which is why I tell people and ask me, "But how, do you like Japan? It's a, it's a good place to live." Yeah. The thing to remember about Japan, and this is two points about this. Now that I think about this, mm. one is Japan is a developed country. It's an industrial democracy, so there are maybe fewer changes than people like to think between Japan and the United States or Canada or Western Europe, for example. Right. That said, one of the things I do notice is that Asia is less different than it used to be. I was in mm. Bangkok. I was in Bangkok hmm. uh, for a conference last December. Okay, and um, especially in Bangkok, mm. compared to the first time I went, which was back about two thousand. Mm. Um, Bangkok is a lot more what, for lack of a better term, what developed. Mm. Than, than it used to be. I mean, sure. you, you still have the gaps. You know, Seoul, you, you're around Seoul, for example. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, Seoul's a Starbucks on every corner. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I, have, I, have, <laughs> I don't know how I've managed to do this, Elliot, but one of the reasons I came to Nansan was I thought it would be a lot easier to get to Asia. And it has been, except huh. for China. I've, mm. managed, I've managed to miss China in 19 years. I've really? been to Macau, Hong Kong, and Taipei. I've been to Seoul. Um, I've been to Manila. <laughs> yeah. I've been to Iloilo. Um, You've you know, still never been to, to China? I ha ha how does one miss a target that big? That's what I want to know. 
anyway, I actually so. I uh, I I sneaked in uh, last. When would that be? Um, was it November or October? Maybe mm-hmm. my brother was visiting his fiance, mm-hmm. who is a PhD at Cambridge, mm-hmm. and was doing a semester at. NYU Shanghai. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was visiting her, and I get an email from my brother very suddenly uh, saying, you know, by the way, I'm in, I'm in Shanghai for this week mm-hmm. if you want to come by. You know, I'm not in Asia that often, right? Yeah, <laughs> and so, right. And so for I'm me, in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? This is, this is like him saying, you know, he's in the neighborhood. So I, I, I look at tickets and I look at the various possibilities. I know I'm going to need a visa as an American trying to go right, right, to, right. to China. Right. Uh, and I find out that there's a loophole and they have a transit visa. Now, I, I think this is essentially, nominally, it's a transit visa mm. saying that you're going through a Chinese airport right uh on en route to you know a third destination and but i think the reality is that china is just opening itself up to international tourism and the potential that that uh exists there economically either way uh if you meet the the Conditions for this loophole, you can get this this seventy two hour transit visa, ah. where which is on arrival. So you don't have to do anything in advance. You arrive at the airport. You explain that you're just traveling through, mm-hmm. and if you're out within seventy two country uh, seventy two hours, right. and you have a plane ticket already for that third right, country, right, right, right. then they grant you uh, you know admission to the country. So I flew from Japan. To Seoul, mm. from Seoul to Shanghai, mm. and then eventually from from Shanghai back to Japan. Mm. But as far as they're concerned, I'm flying into China from Seoul, so my third country, my third destination, is then going back to Japan. Mm. For me, I'm just coming home. Mm. But that's how that's how I was able to get uh, around this, yeah, right, okay. and I was able to stay for the weekend. Right, right, and that was my way in. And uh, yeah, yeah, and I didn't have to go through any of the loopholes, and right, I didn't right, have to order a right. visa in you know right. five days and pay whatever the tremendous expense that would have been. So that was my way in. So if you okay. <laughs> are, are take, take, take take Cal and go through Incheon, okay? Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, there, okay, right. If if you ever decide that uh, I would like to, there's no reason I have. It's mm. I um, I was going to go one time with, with take students and. Uh, my department has seven of these summer program sites in Asia. Wow! And for reasons that were had to do with uh, another faculty member, I ended up going to Hanoi. Okay. For for two weeks, which was yeah. which was in its in its own way, it was quite educational. Mm. I was fourteen when the Vietnam War ended, and I never thought I would ever get to of all places Hanoi in my lifetime. Yeah. And so to be there for a couple of weeks wow. was, uh, with students was, was great. But I missed going to Chiangmai as a result. So. Uh, okay, so uh, last question mm. before we finish up. Yes. And uh, I think you probably have some good advice here. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. But uh, one of the, the goals of this podcast is mm. provide a, a platform for those interested mm-hmm. in potentially living in Japan or working in Japan, mm-hmm. those who would like to make a way for themselves in this in this country. Uh, I'm interested to hear if you have any advice for younger generations, people 
looking at Japan from the outside or those who are maybe have just entered mm-hmm. and are starting, you know, their their experience at a university like Nanzan or right. students studying abroad or someone who just came as an English teacher but doesn't want to do that for the rest of their life, right? right? What advice do you have for someone in that position? Three words. Mm. Have a purpose. Have a purpose. I remember you mentioned English yeah. teachers. And mm. I have, by the way, I have um, nothing against English teachers. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember, was one. <laughs> yeah. I remember being a, a graduate student doing my field work in Japan. Yeah. I spent a lot of times, a lot of time in the youth hostels of Tokyo because mm. I was I was based at Tohoku University right. in Sendai. But if you're going to do a topic on foreign policy. You really need to be in Tokyo for the archives and for the interviews. And so sure. the cheapest way to do that was to the hostels. And I came across a number of people doing a number of mm. jobs, but a number of them were language teachers. Mm. Um, and they sort of fall into two categories, those who, three categories, I guess, those who really like doing it, mm. um, those who are going to do it for a while, um, but because they want to see the world, sort of like a... A right. paid gap year. Right. And then those who are sort of are pushing 40 and <laughs> are in Japan because they got they were sort of they were teaching in Thailand for a while and sort of moved yep. on and and those are the people I would worry most about. Right. Um, and um, especially in a, in a country like Japan. So yeah. have a purpose. Why are you mm. think about why you are here. In my case, and this is I don't know if this is advice, but as I said a few moments ago, I came here uh, for very clear mm. professional reasons, mm. and that's the easiest way to come to Japan, yeah. to have an offer of stable, well-paid employment. Um, if you're here, I know, uh, for example, I know the, the work you do mm. uh, here at Global Aichi, a lot of students um, want to, especially if, um, if, for example, coming from Nanzai, I know you've, you've, you've mentored a number of our students. Yeah. They want to work in Japan because they've, by the time they graduate, they will have put four years of hard work studying and learning Japanese, yeah. learning to be in Japan, learning to live in Japan. Yeah. Um, depending on where they're coming from, there may be jobs here that are better suited to what they want to do than there are other places. Right. But that means having a purpose. Right. They have a sense of why they want to be here. I think that's the most important thing. Mm. Um, about, I think, being anywhere. And this is, this is uh, I've seen any number of my colleagues from graduate school, mm. for example, this is back in the United States, who were roughly in those three categories. <laughs> and some of them, I have a colleague who, you know, I don't think he ever finished the, the PhD. As far, as far as I know, he's still playing saxophone at jazz clubs. But I guess that's what he wants to do. But I mean, that's, right. you, know, um, you have to be pretty clear about why you're here. Right. And about pretty, pretty clear about what you expect to do while you're here. Mm. I was, in a sense, lucky, I guess. I had gone through a 10-year process in the United States, mm. um, and when I got here, and then went back on the contract system for two or three rounds, I knew what to do. I'd been through it. I knew exactly what to do. You know, I had yeah. a sense of every year, how do you, how, how do you get off contract here, mm. which is basically how to get tenure. You know, um, how do you get off contract? Um, you look at the job 
description and the job requirements and you do them. Mm. Okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> um, but that means you have to have a pretty good idea of what that is when you get here. Right. Um, I'm not, that, that's probably fuzzy advice, but that's probably the best I can do. But it, it helps. I've, no. I have any number of, I've met any number of people that come here starry-eyed about Japan. It's the, the National oh, yeah. Geographic view of Japan, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I agree, I agree with you exactly. And having a purpose, like you said, having a purpose uh, is what's going to keep people moving forward yeah. when the... What, how would you describe it? When all of the sort of uh, the foreign excitement about living in Japan wears off. Yeah. Right? And it will wear off. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so what is it going to, what, what is it that you're going to, to pour your energies into day after day moving mm-hmm. forward? Other, when, when the fact that just being in Japan right. mm-hmm. is no longer a mo- motivation in itself. Mm, right. Right. A friend of mine, <clears throat> um, from my hometown actually, mm. um, is in Tokyo right now. And he was in o- the uh, Kyoto area for a while. Mm. And he was uh, in Singapore for a while. He was in Tokyo. Then he was in Singapore for a while. Then he was back in, um, he was back in California um, to sort of for job training and stuff like that. But um, he's, a, he's a very successful businessman. Mm. Um, who likes being in Japan partly because mm. he's been in Singapore, um, been in California. He's worked in a number of places, mm. um, and he likes Japan. Yeah, and uh, he has now he has family reasons to, to be here. Okay, um, which is a huge incentive, frankly. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's 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 a major consideration, one that should be taken quite seriously. Mm. But um, you know, in in his case, I think he's he. It's I, it's, it's been interesting to watch him because um, again, he and I have been friends since we were kids, really. But like me, made it a, a sort of what maybe a lifestyle and a career choice, a profession. But it was a yeah. professional, it was a careful professional decision that he prefers. He would rather be in Tokyo, mm. um, and he's quite quite successful there. You'll have um, to introduce me. I'll have yeah, him I, I, as I, a guest I, on the podcast. Um, actually, I, I would <laughs> it be sounds ha- perfect. I would. I would um, he's an interesting guy to talk to because, yeah. and, and for for you in particular, because mm. I, I'm in the ivory tower, right? Right, right. Which is which is a highly specialized line of work to be in in Japan. Sure. Um, Mason can tell you a lot more about the hurly burly of, you know, big companies in the big city, which may, which maybe what you want to hear. So I'd be, I'd be happy to introduce you to him. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm looking so, forward to that. Actually, um, the year I came, the year before I came, um, we had a quite sudden retirement into the department, mm. and I was asked to be chair, interim chairman while we went through new hire. I could have been um, decided against it, which was good because when you're a young academic, and this has to do with have an objective. <laughs> if you're a young yeah. academic, the the, uh, the the smart money is turn down the administrative jobs. Mm. Uh, especially department chairman because it's thankless, and <laughs> get that get that next book out. So that was, right, right. That, um, Be productive. It, yeah. It it, it, it that, every, every that's something else about this. Every job, every career has its expectations and it yeah. has its criteria for success. And if you don't understand that, then it doesn't matter where you are. Right. You could be in Japan and unhappy. You could be in, <laughs> yeah. in Dhaka and unhappy. Right. You could be in Chicago and unhappy. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Excellent. Uh, do you have a homepage or SNS or is there a way that people can find you if they're interested um, in you and in your work? Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on um, uh, pri private accounts, on um, individual accounts on Facebook and on, um, what do you call it, uh, Instagram. Okay. Um, I don't tweet. Okay. Yeah. At my age, good for you. One, 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 <laughs> one may bellow, but one does not tweet. So, um, but um, actually, my department, uh, Nazan, of course, has has a, um, a Facebook homepage. Mm. The um, his the international alumni uh, homepage. Okay. Also, my department policy studies has yeah. recently started um, one, which we need to do a little more with. But we're 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 out there. Um, the graduate program has, of course, a um, a, um, a web page as well um, if you look at uh, if, if you look through if you look for policy studies mm. the guy with the white hair that's me yeah so <laughs> excellent well I'll see if I can find those and maybe link them in the description if you if would I can. Yeah, yeah. that would be great um, excellent so, yeah. well thanks a lot thanks again for doing this this is a lot of fun Elliot thank you so much for having me yeah Hi, it's, um, it's been, been, been longer I think than when we may have originally intended but it's been a pleasure to talk to you Oh,